Thank you, Darla. Beautiful song. If you would, please, folks, turn to Luke chapter 10. And as we proceed to Luke chapter 10 now, uh, let me just make a, a brief comment on the nature of the gospel genre. Um, that, that word genre that you hear from time to time, it just means a style or category of writing, like history or poetry or mystery. Uh, they're all individual categories of genre. The gospel writing as a category, as a style, as a genre, it stands apart on its own. The historical events of Christ's life are recorded without error in only four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are unique to written literature, completely unique to written literature. Being inspired and guided by the Holy Spirit, these four men in the Gospels documented the events of Jesus' life and ministry. Uh, With that said, each Gospel still has its own personality. Each emphasizes unique themes within... um, With reference to the temple sacrifices in Israel, Matthew has a a special uh, allure to the Jew. Matthew was written for the Jew. The Gospel of John exhorts everybody to believe in Christ. And uh, Luke, as we've been studying now for some time, that's composed especially with the Roman Gentile in mind. And then each fills in the detail of the others. Uh, With that said, none of them contains every event of Jesus' life. And the Gospel writers often concentrating on themes, uh, none of them was written as woodenly chronological. Not woodenly. Luke's the most chronological of the four. It's one of the reasons that I chose for us to study through Luke. Uh, Our culture is a very linear thinking culture, beginning to end. Uh, We must realize, though, that not all cultures previous to us uh, processed life in entirely the same way as us. Many ancient cultures, they rationalized information more on the basis of truth as it is opposed to lies, uh, moral as uh, contrast to immoral, God as he is related to man, and redemption being the ultimate end of man. Thus, Matthew had limited interest in chronology. Those certain points of the life, his birth and his death and his resurrection, are in order. But he had limited interest in chronology as he wrote. By comparison, our minds from an early age were trained in this in school um, to, to compare by processing eras what the 50s were like compared to the 60s and the 60s to the 70s, what life is like now as opposed to what it was in, uh, during the Civil War. So when I tell you that there was a, at least a brief time lapse between Luke chapter 9, verse 62, In the beginning of Luke chapter 10, verse 1, those who've been studying the Bible for a while uh, realize this this doesn't present a theological problem. Uh, Luke simply left out a brief period that didn't match the theme that he was teaching. Uh, The Gospel of John, thankfully, colors in that time period. Uh, When Luke decides to then bunch together or press together our passage today, up against what he wrote in in the end of chapter 9. He does so for a designed purpose. Last week, as we observed three men, at the end of chapter 9, they they each suffered a superficial commitment to Christ. 
I made short mention of the first one. He was a Jewish scribe who hoped to uh, gain something by pairing up with Jesus in ministry, hoping there'd be some kind of financial advantage. And, of course, Jesus quickly dashed his hopes, saying, I don't have anything. Don't have a place to lay my own head. Uh, the second man, who was identified by Matthew as a disciple, requested to leave Jesus. And then a third man, who had also had his hand to the plow, at least for a while, also sought to leave. And each of them earned an increasingly stern rebuke from Jesus. And, and I stated last week, my impression is that, that none of these men uh, remained. None of these three remained with Jesus. You might ask, well, how... How do we know that? Luke doesn't record their responses, per se. Uh, not from any of them. That's a good question. In fact, one young man came up to me after the message last week and asked that question. It's an excellent question. My conclusion comes from the progressing narrative into Luke chapter 10. Remember, when, when, Ruth, uh, when Luke wrote this letter, there weren't any chapter breaks, folks. Uh, the chapter breaks and verse numbers didn't come for some 1500 years after Christ. They aren't original. Those were added to help us find our spot. Um, So in Luke chapter 10 verse 1 when we read, now after this, we have to ask ourselves, after what? After what? The, The contextual answer is, after Jesus rebuked those three, now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others. Seventy others. And he sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And now pay attention to the theme that that Luke develops in verse 2. And Jesus was saying to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The Lord appoints seventy others. Others. Uh, And when you reference your Greek lexicon, it tells us that the Greek term others means not the same ones as previously mentioned. So, other than the previous three. Um, It can also uh, actually refer to the twelve at the beginning of verse chapter 9. It could be way back even before the transfiguration. So, who is Luke implying? Is he implying other than the other three or other than the twelve that he sent out previously that we studied. Uh, Personally, I think both. I think both. Uh, I think he implies other than the previous three because he's emphasizing to his reader how the harvest is so plentiful, but the laborers are just so few. Why? Where'd all the laborers go? Well, some of them, as we just studied, just, just packed up their bags and left. Some of them left. They went home. So combining this with Jesus' stern rebukes to those three men, telling, telling even one of them, remember, to go. Go. I think Luke is implying they had left. So Jesus sent out these 70, these 70 others to prepare every city and place where he himself was going to come. I find that striking, really looking at that. I would never, never remember seeing that Their message isn't only that Jesus Christ and the kingdom is near you, but that Jesus himself is coming. You got to be sending them ahead to tell them that he's coming. Do we, do we ever forget that? How often do we witness to people and tell them uh, how Jesus died for our sins, how he rose from the dead again? Do we remember to tell them or warn them, really, he's coming, folks. 
Jesus Christ is coming. It's essential to warn him that he is coming. These are the last words, by the way, that Jesus spoke as recorded in the Bible, Revelation chapter 22. Yes, I am coming quickly, Jesus says. He's coming quickly. This is the combined mission of these 70 people in verses 9 and 11. The kingdom of God has come near to you. The reason it's so near is because Jesus is coming. The kingdom of God is near. Uh, Notice it's the same message commanded to be proclaimed to both those cities that receive Christ. You'll see that in verse 9. And those places, verse 11, that reject Him. They get the same message. Jesus, the kingdom of God, is near and Jesus is coming. To everyone here today, whether you receive Him as Christ... Whether you have received him, whether you're pondering it and trying to decide which direction to go, or whether you just outright reject him. The kingdom of God is near because Jesus is coming. He's coming. He's going to reap his harvest whether you accept him as Savior or not. He's coming. There there is no lack of a harvest. We're told in the the scripture, uh, the harvest is plentiful, folks. It's plentiful, verse 2 says, uh, yeah, Christians aren't going to be able to, to claim when Jesus returns to gather together his church, his elect, or the rapture uh, to bring to himself. Nobody's going to be able to, to say, you know, I, I, I just, there was nothing to do. I couldn't find anything to do. Uh, there was nothing for me to do. There's, there's plenty to do, folks. The harvest is plentiful. There's plenty to do to prepare for his return if you're willing to labor you're willing to be a laborer. Uh, most, Jesus suggests, just don't want to be laborers. There are few. There are few who will labor. One of the, one of the greatest, really, tragedies that I think uh, in, uh, happens in ministry is that people get the impression that they're waiting for the perfect ministry fit so then they can do it. They're just kind of waiting for, when that comes around, that one, I don't know exactly what it is, but I'll know when I see it. Um, then when that which perfectly suits me, that perfect ministry, then, then I'll serve. Then I'll be a laborer. Folks, that, that's a lie of the enemy. That's a lie of the enemy right there. Um, notice Jesus here doesn't even hand out a survey to these 70 and ask them, you know, well, what would you guys like to do? Got any good ideas? He's not surveying them. He's sending them. He's sending them. I have a job for you. I want you to tell them I'm coming. And that labor can be in Awana. It can be in a street sign ministry. Just think of that, Curtis. We need a sign that says Jesus is coming. He's coming. It can be turning the lights on and the air conditioning. So as people visit, they see someone else declaring that Jesus is coming. Uh, Ministry isn't usually going to feel like it perfectly suits you or fits you. Um, it, actually, often it's going to be something that you don't feel like you want to do. In fact, that's how I began in ministry. I just started doing everything I really didn't want to do. And then I learned what God had me to do. I'm really not kidding. In my previous church, I just was willing to do whatever they needed and things that I didn't want to do. And you might not have noticed, but these laborers here are going to sense that there's a shortage. 
There's a shortage of kingdom workers for the task that's at hand. Jesus told them to be prepared for that. The laborers are few. He's saying that to the laborers. And pastors across America today notice this. There's, there's just so few. Laborers are few. It was true for Jesus. It's true today. Uh, you know, I used to lament that a little bit. I used to lament that uh, laborers are few. But my attitude's kind of changing dramatically. Let me tell you why. Um, I used to think, not even that long ago, that if everyone would just do a little, if everyone would just do a little bit, um, you know, doing this church thing would just be so easy. If everyone would just do a little bit. You know, one of the things that I alternate with a couple guys doing is, is weed eating. Alternating with a couple other guys during the week, and, and uh, not something I really wanted to do, but needed to be done. And I kind of like doing it once I get out here. Um, and I thought, you know, if, if all the guys chipped in, I'd only have to do it like every 17th week or something like that, you know? Like three times a year. Think how easy that would be. But now what kind of sacrifice would that be for Christ? What kind of cross would I be bearing? What kind of reward would be given for such light service for Christ? So I've begun to think differently about that. Um, how bearing a heavy or an uncomfortable cross will be ultimately for our good when we see our Lord and Savior because He's coming. He's coming. Um, remember, folks, if it were easy, if ministry were easy, then, then everybody would be doing it. But the laborers are few. Not everybody is doing it. And, and since the harvest is, is more than we can handle, harvest always feels more than what we can handle. It's always more there than what we can handle. Uh, it's plentiful. Because of that, we'll obey our Lord and we'll continue to pray for more laborers to enter into labor. Um, did you notice that the passage here implies that, that the ones that are beseeching God, they're pleading with God to send out laborers, they're already laborers themselves. I mean, they aren't themselves relaxing and resting, praying for God to send somebody else out. No, they're praying for more laborers because they're already laborers. You know, that would be a little, a little ridiculous in a way that to pray that God would raise up laborers who'd be concerned about widows or concerned about suffering Christians who are poor around the globe and then, then not be willing to do anything about it. What kind of prayer would that be? or no willingness to act on such priorities, uh, or to pray to God to send out laborers into the harvest, yet not being involved or participating in that harvest. How could you pray that way? How could you pray that way? Uh, it may be no little wonder why so many prayers continue to go answer, uh, unanswered, because James wrote, he said, you do not have because you do not ask, and... You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. You know, I think this struck me this morning. We pray for our country. We pray for um, morality and justice and things to be set right and for the godly uh, leaders, men and women to rise up and we pray um, pray for really America to be saved, in a sense. But are we preaching the kingdom? 
why would we pray and then not be in laborers? We're, we're a representative republic, folks. You know that. The people who are in the local offices or Washington or whatever, that, that's all a reflection of what the people ask for. If we want to see our government change, we need to see our culture change. And the only way our culture changes is if we'll become laborers and tell them that Jesus is coming. Unless we see a revival in America where the people actually change, there's not going to be any representatives changed. And nothing's going to change. We have to be willing to be laborers, or we're just asking amiss if we're not willing to get in. We're just saying, God, pray this country, yet we're not willing to get in and do the work. Um, In verse 3, we come really to the heart of this passage. Jesus sends out 70... As he tells them, Go, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you and heal those who are in it uh, that are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. We saw similar parameters uh, placed upon the twelve as they were sent out at the beginning of chapter 9. Uh, this is why I think uh, In referring to others, Luke's not only contrasting these 70 with the three we just discussed, but he's also comparing them to the 12 as well. He sent out 70 others than the 12 uh, that he sent out previously. The primary difference is that earlier Jesus was preaching the kingdom to them, offering himself to them as king. Now we know he's already set his face for Jerusalem. So his focus has changed. And Israel at large has rejected its Messiah already. But he's sending these 70 to go ahead to the cities to identify which ones might receive him as he makes his path to Calvary. Which cities will receive me as I go to the cross? Which ones will reject me? And the first section until verse 9 describes the cities that will receive Christ. Verse 10 and, and later uh, that we'll look at next week uh, describes the cities that won't. And, and these, the cities that will ultimately receive Christ will demonstrate that by receiving the messengers of Christ as his ambassadors. In verse 16, he tells them, the one who listens to you listens to me. Well, what a powerful statement concerning the authority of the gospel message that we're preaching, uh, the authority of the ones that are proclaiming his message, the ones that Jesus has sent, the authority of that. If they listen to you, they've listened to me. When a preacher, an, an evangelist, a leader in some capacity, faithfully discharges biblical teaching, the true gospel Uh, The listeners are not responding to that preacher, but are responding to the authority delegated to that preacher, and and they're reacting either positively or negatively to Christ, ultimately. Um, And and those preachers must be sent. In Romans 10, verse 13, we are told, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
How then will they call on him who they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? That's why Jesus sends. He sends. And and then, of course, we know Romans then says after that, how beautiful are the feet of those uh, who bring the good news of good things. And then, so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. We must be sent. We must be sent. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. As so many of us serving on Friday nights with Awana, uh, working with the children, that, that is one of the verses I helped a young boy memorize, just as other people were helping the young, other young boys and the other young girls. The first time he had ever memorized the verse, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And you get a, an opportunity to share these things for the first time with children. We're sent to them. We're sent to the next generation to teach them. It's by hearing. As they listen to us, they're listening to Christ. What a charge. What an honor. What a responsibility. But what a privilege. Preachers need to be sent. They need to be sent. And in verse 3, Jesus says, Go. Go. Behold, I send you. I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes. Greet no one on the way. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Speaking of the reception you get. Those are very similar instructions originally given to the twelve. They are to be lambs amongst wolves. Lambs sent out amongst wolves. It amplifies how Christianity doesn't gain converts through force or through coercion, but through the power of the message we preach. Physically, we're we're harmless. We're harmless, uh, completely dependent upon God to protect us, to lead us, to shepherd us. Uh, Titus 3 verse 2 tells us uh, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Boy, if you just do that today, you stand out. There are wolves out there waiting. But the message is urgent, folks. Christ is coming soon. Christ is coming soon. He's got, by this time, probably less than five months to the cross. And he's coming to these towns. He doesn't have a lot of time. He's coming soon. So they're instructed to travel light. Don't take anything with you. Greet no one on the way. Greet no one on the way. The the mission here is one of haste. There's an urgency to it. Uh, Greetings, as most of us have experienced, even on Sunday morning, they, they can get encumbered, right? Greetings can take a long time. Departures can take a long time after you've begun talking with someone because you enjoy company so, company so much. Um, that was especially true in the ancient Near East. The culture there, the greetings were, were long and extrapolated. So Jesus just, it's not a command to act rude. It, it's about not getting distracted from your mission. There to be couriers with a message, delivering the message of God's peace through Christ. Don't even let the social demands of the culture slow you down from completing your task. With the cross of Calvary in sight, time is now of the essence, and Jesus is coming. 
I'm not going to devote a whole lot of time here uh, about the money belt, the other supplies that they weren't to take with. You know, we adequately discussed that back in chapter 9 with the, with the 12 apostles. You remember that. Uh, it, it no longer applies to the ones that Jesus has sent. Very clearly, as we studied before, Luke chapter 2, verse 35, on the night of Jesus' betrayal, he, he nullifies that command to his disciples, if you go look there. To, to go out without a money belt or any supplies or anything like that. He nullifies that. Actually tells them from here on out, prepare yourselves. Prepare yourselves. Again, Luke 22, verse 35. I'm not going to go through that again. But what is not nullified is found in verse 7. Verse 7. If you find a house of peace, one that receives you, Jesus says, stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give to you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you and heal those in it who are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Let me just state that over time, over the centuries, there's been all kinds of, all types of distortions of this passage uh, even abuses that some may remain alive today. But the perpetual command for the church is this. The laborer is worthy of his wages. The laborer is worthy of his wages. That, that's the perpetual command that continues on. The, the command to go out without a money belt or any supplies or any extra pair of shoes or sandals, that's nullified by Jesus before he is crucified. But the laborer is worthy of his wages. This command is perpetual. How do we know that? Very easy. Very simple. Follow me. The Apostle Paul reiterated it later on. Uh, remember our scripture reading earlier that we read? 1 Corinthians 9. He declares there that the Lord directed those who proclaimed the gospel to get their living from the gospel. The laborer is worthy of their wages. Um, not only this, but in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18, when referring to elders and pastors who work hard at preaching and teaching, Paul takes a, a direct quote of Luke saying this, The scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. That's 1 Timothy five eighteen. Paul quotes Luke. The quote, do not muzzle the ox while he's treading out the grain. That's from Deuteronomy. That's from the Old Testament. Uh, but don't miss the obvious. Paul tells us that the scripture says the laborer is worthy of his wages. That phrase is only written in Luke. In all of scripture, only in Luke does it say the laborer is worthy of his wages. It's found nowhere else. Consequently, Paul is what? He's identifying Luke's gospel as Scripture. It is holy Scripture. Luke is inspired by God to write this. More importantly, Paul maintains the same principle as given by Luke. Uses it in the same context, the same way. The laborer is worthy of what he receives. The laborer is worthy of his wages. You'd be surprised... I was processing this for days now. How many missionaries 
and, and even pastors who struggle both mentally and emotionally with receiving financial support. I don't. Just I threw that in there. Um, just, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. No, but it's true. How many missionaries and pastors struggle with receiving financial support? But Christians can, can slide into the notion that they're always giving the kingdom laborer a gift. You know what I'm saying? Here, here's a little gift, the missionary or whoever's coming through town. When you, the Lord moves your heart to meet the needs of a ministry worker, it's not a gift. It's wages earned. And it's good wages. The laborer is worthy of his wages. You know, <laughs> I wish Mr. Hasty from last week, if you remember, I wish he would have stuck it out. Honestly. Because he came to Jesus and all we know is Jesus' response that, you know, I, I don't have a place to even lay my head. That, that was a scribe, Matthew tells us. They'd come to him, someone used to getting compensated for uh, his work, and Jesus said, I don't have anything to offer you. Remember we talked about that? And it, it seems that Mr. Hasty um, left a little early. Uh, and I, I'm sad about that because as Jesus rebuked him that I don't have anything to offer you, when you get into Luke chapter 10, if he just would have stuck with the ministry he would have ultimately discovered that all the way along, Jesus actually meets the needs. He actually exceeds all of his laborers' needs. Jesus was speaking to his heart. Because, see, too often this passage is represented wrongly. Um, it can be first suggested to a young mission candidate that you, know, you have to be willing to hop on a plane without a penny to your name or without any chair, change of clothes or anything and fly into a jungle without any provisions if you really want to be spiritual. That's how this is sometimes represented. That's how you really show that you have faith. And that suggestion in itself can, can really discourage a qualified ministry candidate. So you'll think that I'm not worthy. All the self-doubt. Secondly, churches can fail to recognize, as I stated earlier, that, that in Luke 22, verse 35, uh, Jesus just doesn't demand that we not carry any provision today. You don't have to fly into Neverland with, without training or supplies or no ongoing financial support from anyone and insist that that's spiritual. That's fine if you want to do it, but I didn't tell you to do it. Missionary candidates and pastors today should never be held to verse 4. The principle it carries on is that as you proceed in ministry, as you continue in ministry, it's found in verse 8. As a minister, you eat what is set before you because you have earned it. The laborer is worthy of his wages. As I wind down, obviously, being someone who's a laborer, this always affects you personally. Someone who's uh, employed, in a sense, and earning the money. But my heart genuinely goes to those who are seeking to go into the ministry. Striving to follow and wondering what the parameters are and whether they have it in them. Um, so, as I wind down here, this lesson 
It's not only for people who are considering future careers in ministry or going to Bible college or perhaps becoming a pastor or leader of some sense. It's also for those of us who provide for them. Those of us who provide for them, which this passage should describe all of us providing for them. Don't think that when Jesus says in verse 7, stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you, um, don't think that he's just suggesting that, you, that a ministry person has to just perpetually endure whatever rotten meal and hard bed is set before them. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Because he says, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Would you actually think that Jesus is suggesting that the message that you bear, that the kingdom has come near and that Christ is coming, is only worth a plate of scorpions? No. That's not what he's suggesting. No. That's not the point of this passage. The point is that generally, because of the message that you bear and the primacy of the scripture that you teach, the house upon which your peace is received, they will treat you especially well. Especially well is what I think we're seeing in this passage. Uh, I think even to Jasmine and uh, Tanisha, as we had some ministry fellows come singing this past few months ago, this summer. All they could do is rave. They're missionary candidates. They came through. We were able to put them in homes and be fed in the morning and other things. All they could do is rave about what great food they had, how wonderful it was, the selection of fruits and everything. They were so joyful. They were the laborers. And that was a house upon whom they found peace. And they were treated especially well. Jesus says, stay in that house. Wherever your peace falls, stay in that house. Eat, eat or drink whatever they give you. Never feel guilty about it. Never feel like they've given you too much. Don't, never feel like they've splurged too much upon you. Just accept it. Receive it with joy. Because as a laborer, you're worthy of the wages. Don't move from house to house. Don't try to disperse the cost of your care across many people. You're, you're, you're not a burden to that house. That's what I'm seeing here. You're not a burden, burden to that house. You're a blessing to that house. These laborers, as they went, they were a blessing to these houses. The suggestion is that they're going to treat you good. In verse 9, you're going to reciprocate by treating them good. Heal everyone in that house who is sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. So not only are the laborers worth every penny and meal provided to them because of the infinite value of the message that they bear, and the people who receive them are going to recognize that, and they're going to treat them well, but not only is it of infinite value because of the infinite value of the message, there are also just so few laborers to go around. There aren't many. There aren't many. Um, the passage implies there's a scarcity of laborers. It's a tight market. There aren't many. So we who receive them are going to treat them especially well. Could you be received into a home that doesn't have a whole lot? Yeah. Christian home. Food ain't real great. Bed's a little lumpy. Sure. But if they've truly received the kingdom, they're still giving you the best that they have. 
called hospitality. Some homes have more to offer than other homes. Some ministries offer more than other ministries, but if they're legitimate Christians, they'll still offer you their best. <laughs> Seen that time and time again. Even if they have little, they're still giving you the best of what they have. I don't see any sure indication here that Jesus is implying that kingdom workers should anticipate perpetually uh, enduring uh, harsh, or I mean unpalatable conditions, if I put it that way. Uh, from what, I'm, what I've experienced personally in ministry and missions over the years, the kingdom labor is usually expected by the host to endure the best that the house has to offer. And for that, the ministry people are very grateful Let's pray. Father, oh, your word is so good and so rich. Lord, and you've been so, so good to each of us. Lord, so generous, uh, not only in our lives and in this country that we live, Lord, but in ministry as uh, we share, as we come together, Lord, the missionaries that we support. We think of uh, those in ministry who come through that we meet. And Lord, uh, help us to always remember how precious they are to you. As Lord, you have sent them. And Lord, help us to always remember uh, that the labor is worthy of their wages. Lord, I know that we have this heart here. We've seen it time and time again. But thank you for the reminder of how uh, important it is to you that uh, your laborers be treated well. Lord, uh, bless our church today as we had a wonderful breakfast and uh, enjoyed so much that we share together, the fellowship, the uh, uh, stories, our lives that we, that we share, Lord. Uh, thank you for them. And uh, for those who might be ill, I know there's a number today that couldn't make it, uh, we pray for them that they would be restored to us uh, quickly. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.